Victoria Hislop has been writing best-selling books for adults for many years now, but has recently turned her hand to younger readers with her newest title, Maria's Island, her first book for children. Set on the island of Spinalonga, Greece's former leper colony, it explores the themes of stigma, shame and the treatment of those who are different, which are just as relevant for children as adults. Victoria spoke recently to Nikki Gamble to tell us more about the book. Many listeners will be familiar with Victoria's books and among them her debut novel, The Island, published in 2005. I can scarcely believe it. It's a story of a young Cretan girl who contracts leprosy and is sent to the leper colony on the island of Spinalonga, a small island off the north coast of Crete. It's here that she meets the doctor who treats and eventually cures her. As the inhabitants are released back to the mainland, she realises that she's fallen in love with the doctor and that the cure is bittersweet. She's regained her health, but fears that she will lose her chance for love. While forced isolation of families felt tragic, it was not a bleak story and the characters and their relationships really hooked me. So I was very excited then to learn that there was going to be a children's version and this was published in June this year. I'm looking forward to finding out more about it. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. And it's lovely to be talking to you. Perhaps I can start with the beginnings of the adult book. I'm sure you've talked about this many times, so please bear with me for asking you again. It's fine. Absolutely. Because it was a very life-changing moment for me it was it was no small thing in my life um it was literally 20 years ago and we were on holiday just in the east of Crete and most days we all thought it would be quite nice to do something that wasn't lying on the beach or you know playing in the sea and then I noticed in the guidebook this entry for Spinalonga I'd never heard of it, and it was just described as a Venetian castle, afterwards a Turkish colony, and then it Mm -hmm. finished its life as a leper colony in 1957. Mm. And I was born in 1959, my sister in 1957. So it, it wasn't really history with a capital H. It was something, a story or a place that had a connection almost with the span of our own lives. So I kind of corralled everyone and we got the last boat that was going across that day. So we had it more or less to ourselves. And I think that was a piece of good fortune because I found the atmosphere there instantly arresting. I mean, it was quite visceral. And paradoxically, given that it was a place where for 50 years, hundreds of people were taken, many of them by force because they didn't want to leave their families. But if diagnosed with leprosy, you were obliged to you know, be isolated in this place. But paradoxically, the atmosphere for me was a very positive one. And it was not um, kind of clanging bells and gloom and doom. It, it really did have some kind of positivity to it Mm. so that that was that first visit um by another piece of you know serendipity one of our friends was a dermatologist his name's in every copy of the book Richard Groves and 
he was the only one in our party who actually knew anything about leprosy. He said, oh, it's a disease that starts on the skin and if left to develop, it attacks the nerve endings. And that's where you get these disfigurements and loss of parts of your body. So Richard gave me this mini lesson in what leprosy actually was Mm -hmm. and how, and in a way, he answered the question in my head. I thought people would go there and be dead within days, but actually you can live with leprosy for decades. So I thought, well, that answers why I feel that people came to live here, not just to die. I want to come to the children's book. And you've given thanks in this to Eero. Eero Pugliazido. For planting the little seed. So is this somebody who has planted the seed for the children's version of the book? Yes, very much. There's something about this wonderful woman. She's a teacher. She teaches in the local primary school here in Crete. And we were having lunch at somebody else's mutual friend's house about two years ago. And um, she looked at me with these daggeringly beautiful blue eyes and she looked in my eyes and she said, I'd really love to read the island to my class because the town where she teaches is 15 minutes from Spinalonga. So it's, you know, very much part of the local history of this area, Spinalonga. So all the children know about it. And she she has created a, a kind of teaching a little programme which uses images of Spinalonga and facts from the past. And anyway, she said to me, I would love to read it to the children because it has things about stigma and separation and difference and, you know, all the things that, you know, we're all familiar with a little bit more since we've had, you know, a pandemic in our own lives. But she said, I can't read it to them because it's got, you know, a lot of adult relationships that it's not, you know, entirely right for, you know, the average 10, 11, 12-year-old. And it got me thinking, I mean, literally that tiny conversation. And a month or so later, when I came back to Crete, um, I sat down and, and drafted it. And, of course, several of the key characters in the adult version are children. And the only thing I would have known about writing a children's book is that you need to have young characters and I thought well actually I've got Maria and Anna you know they're eight years old and ten years old and then little Dimitris who's the Mm. best friend of of Maria and their friend you know there's a whole lot of children at the beginning because the very starting point with the island my focus really was these children losing their mother Mm. so there they were just sort of ready formed this little gang of of children leading these very carefree, rather beautiful, simple lives by the sea in a village in the 19 sort of 40s. And I thought, well, my characters are there. So, you know, I carried on and um, pared away all the things that very easily just kind of dissolved away from the story. You know, it, it, it happened very naturally because I just saw it through the eyes of these children. Mm. And then as they become teenagers, what happens then? And there was, it was very, it had a f- kind of flow to it. And the, have a very, very vivid memory. I'm, it's one of the things I'm blessed with. I can never remember historical dates or details, 
but I can remember my own childhood as though it was yesterday. You know, I can remember everything about my primary school, what it was like, you know, how children were sometimes just left out. And even when you're a child, you don't quite understand why a child is left out, but a child is uh, for different reasons. And I could remember how that felt just observing that. So a lot a lot of my childhood was kind of somehow vivid enough to sort of put that into the story. It, it was a joy, actually, to sort of write it, although it's a sad story. I was quite interested in some of the differences um, in the way that you told the story. So obviously the island, which I've, I have read, is essentially a third person narration focalized through Maria's eyes but then when you came to writing Maria's Island it's much more complex actually the narrative because we've got a young girl then her grandmother and all the letters going on what were you thinking or or was it just an intuitive response to do it in that way? It's been a little bit of a mission of mine in the last three or four years and it was as my mother was sort of aging and my aunt as well you know going into their 80s and then into their 90s that these elderly um, relatives of ours have the most astonishing amounts of history inside them you know details of their lives which strangely I think a lot of people elderly people think will be a bit dull and to me the the opposite of dull there can be nothing more interesting you know even you know my mother um, who died last year I mean she would still remember you know the time when there was no telephone in the house you know when very few people had cars you know certainly before people went to the moon you know it was a whole different era you know my grandmother you know she was born in the 1890s so she remembered the invention of the aeroplane and the car and the telephone and all of this and I was always quite keen to grab her memories it's something I've always done a little bit of so to answer the question about Maria's Island I thought you know there's this little girl who should be asking her grandma questions. And her grandmother might be a bit reticent at first because she's talking about a difficult family history. But actually, I think the skipping of a generation, it's, it's almost like they would be telling a story because some of the things that a 70-year-old would be able to tell an 8-year-old would be almost fantastic. Memories are very precious and I'm Um, Whenever I get the chance, I encourage children, you know, when they're interested and when they like, you know, perhaps keeping their own diary, to sit down with an elderly person and ask them, you know, to describe what their classroom looked like, what they wore, what they ate for their lunch. All of that is of, I think, potentially great interest to a child. Mm -hmm. So that, that was my feeling when I started this story that it's a a little girl sitting with her grandma, just asking her a few questions. And then this whole kind of slightly hidden story comes out. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you you guess as a reader from that is that both of them are benefiting, yeah. both the teller and the listener. 
are really gaining a lot from that experience. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that before, but I, I think that's right. It's a kind of not exactly therapeutic thing for the grandmother, but you know, some of this has been hidden in her family, perhaps because of the stigma around leprosy. So yes, I think that probably it's a win-win situation, isn't it? One of the things that really struck me was the resilience of the children, um, Demetrius and Maria. And although it's very sad and very poignant, they actually are quite remarkably stoic. And it sort of reminded me of some of the things that people have been saying over the past 18 months, catastrophizing our situation. I thought there were some really good lessons in here about mm. how things can be all right, even in difficult circumstances. Yes, I mean, I want that message to, to be there because the pandemic started taking over our lives sort of during the writing of the book and certainly during the whole period of Jill Smith doing the illustrations. And I have to mention Jill because um, she is remarkable. She came out, I was out in, in Crete anyway last summer and, you know, she made a very special effort to come. And for 10 days, she completely saturated herself in this culture. And I think something I know she you know, was introduced to it, the importance of the family out here in Crete, because she met in lots of friends of mine. I think actually children, as they were in England, in Britain at that time, were much tougher. You know, people, life wasn't cushy for anybody in the 1940s and 50s. You know, you didn't have four pairs of shoes, you, you had the one, and you wore it until it wore out, and then you had it resold. I mean, generally, People were physically, I think, more robust um, and, you know, did slightly get on with it and didn't expect eight different flavours of ice cream. You probably mm -hmm. have ice cream once a year as a treat. You know, I'm not just doing that to, oh, life was hard, you know, because I really think it was, but it wasn't any less happy. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I would want that, even if it's not overt, but it's kind of, between the lines, you know, children's pastimes were much simpler. They weren't on Game Boys. They were, you know, skimming stones or, you know, making necklaces out of shells. I'm not idealising what life was like. I'm just describing what it was like. Mm. So it was it's kind of easy to romanticise the past. But in, in the case of Greece, it, it's actually not romanticising. It's literally being quite factual mm. about the simplicity of life. Well, you mentioned Jill Smith's illustration. I'm so glad you mentioned her there. Uh, she's very good at depicting the relationship between characters. It's very tender. Actually, the word is tender that I would use, you know, that mm -hmm. hand-holding. And even though it's sad, there's quite a lot of love expressed through those illustrations. And there's a fantastic scene when they arrive on the island and it's it's joyous, actually. You know, the village is vibrant. Absolutely. I mean, Jill's illustrations absolutely capture what I feel about Spinalonga, that it, it, it can be a joyful place. And when she does that, there's a lovely, as you refer to it, this big double-page spread illustration of the whole. You know, it's people coming out of shops and 
going along the street and and playing and talking and chatting and it it's very very vibrant it's not you know pulling at the heartstrings she never does anything deliberately sentimental she's, she's actually quite subtle with the emotion she allows the reader or the person looking at those images to kind of have their own emotional response to the situation mm-hmm. she never tells you what to feel i think she's a huge talent Mm-hmm. And, you know, the front cover itself, it, it's like a little girl's face, just looking slightly quizzical. But, you know, she hasn't got a, a teardrop coming down her cheek. She's never exploiting emotion. She's just drawing you in. It's as though every little person she illustrates is kind of communicating with you. Mm-hmm. And they are absolutely mm-hmm. glorious illustrations. I, I really love them. And I was shown illustration examples from quite a few different people. I hadn't, we've said I've never done a children's book before. And there were lots of, you know, there are many, many talented illustrators, but many of them just didn't quite get the subtlety, I think, that Mm. I felt was needed. And then suddenly Jill sent in some examples. And I said, that, that is, Mm. that is absolutely how it should be. There's also a quietness to them you know that the image of the mother who's the teacher in the school with her head bent to her writing and her hair's up and there's just this small mark on her neck that's a very understated and quiet picture she's put so much careful careful thought into all of them wow I'm in awe of her to be honest from the sort of beauty of it all I want to perhaps head to something not quite as pleasant, and that's the sister Anna. I found it really hard to find anything redeeming <laughs> about her. Um, I re- should I feel sorry for her in some way? <laughs> well, she is she is the naughty girl at school. She's much naughtier in the adult version, so I toned all that down or threw it away in terms of the plot. But it's shocking how she almost disowns her mother. And how she won't embrace yes. her sister back yes. into her life. Yes, I mean, this I is have... the strength of the stigma, isn't it? As well, absolutely. Because Anna wants to be married and go out and live a life outside the village. You know, she likes to sort of read and look at images of things that are very alien in a Cretan village, and obviously anything that has a stigma like leprosy attached to her family would would certainly not be in her kind of plans mm-hmm. so no she she's she definitely you turns her back and and that's a reality and unfortunately you know still is um because leprosy does still exist there are two or three hundred thousand new cases diagnosed every year around the world i mean mostly in india bangladesh some in south america and people who get this diagnosis are often in places where the stigma is as great now as it was before the cure. Mm. Of course, you know that because you also work with the charity Lepra. Um, I wanted to ask you an obvious question, actually. (laughs) I'm sure anybody that's interested in children's books is going to ask this question. Are we likely to have any more children's books from you? I would absolutely more than anything love to do another book with Jill Smith because she totally understood the feelings 
that I was trying to express. And I've had one idea, which funnily enough comes from another of my adult book, just a little very small part of it that I'd really like to explore. Again, which has children at the heart of it. So something that I said I would, you know, was surprised to be doing, you kind of think, oh, what an enjoyable process it was. Because when you're writing an adult book, apart from anything, you're you are pretty much on your own. You know, it's a one one person show. You know, editors play a important role but the actual thing that you hand to a reader that's just you and I love the fact that you know this was a I wouldn't even call it a partnership because I I feel I'm not equal to Jill's talent with the illustrations no that that's definitely something that I dream of. It's quite an unusual situation because you may or may not know that illustrators rarely get the opportunity to even meet with their authors uh, before a book is published so what you had there was obviously something quite special. I'm amazed that writers and illustrators don't kind of hold hands at least for some meeting point you know and I, I really felt that Jill and I were just together on this. I want to ask you maybe one final question uh, I'm obviously excited at the prospect of another children's book but I'm equally uh, thrilled that you've written another adult book, vis- Revisiting Spinalonga, so One Night in August. And I know our listeners would like to know just a little bit about that. So could you entice them into this story? <laughs> well, again, the pandemic has to be mentioned, unfortunately, but sometimes, you know, it kind of led to a few positive things, didn't it? I was living in our sort of isolated place in the middle of nowhere when we'd all been in lockdown and my mother had just died and she died in a a residential home very suddenly unexpectedly and we hadn't been able to be with her we hadn't been able to actually see her for a week beforehand because they'd gone into a sort of shutdown so there was a moment of you know grief and and dismay and amusement you know, a a unique moment in my life and in the family's life. And we all felt that we needed to occupy ourselves. And of course, for me, it was writing, you know, what else could I do? And my mind was, you know, quite taken up with these similarities between the leprosy period of the 1940s and 50s before there was any treatment or cure, the isolation all of these things. It was just uncannily, um, uncanny number of parallels. So not being able to travel around Greece, which is what I normally do to find inspiration for my novels, I thought, well, what happened to some of those people who were on Spinalonga and in that community? What happened to them after the leprosy hospital closed down? after the death of Anna, which is kind of happens on the same August night. And again, you know, writing can be enormously pleasurable. And, you know, for those months, I sat and explored and answered those questions, you know, what happened next? And again, I never imagined I'd write a children's book, and I never imagined I'd write a sequel to anything. Um, But gradually, this story just sort of unfolded and out of it came one August night and it was I suppose in writing 
Most writers will find an outlet for emotions, for things that they've experienced or are experiencing. And it's a kind of a form of catharsis, you know, and that's really what what happened during the course of writing that book. I love the idea that we might have parents reading one of your adult novels and children reading Maria's Island at the same time and somehow inhabiting through your stories the same world and having conversations about it. Wouldn't that be lovely? It's quite an odd thought, isn't it? I hadn't thought about it, actually, but it could happen. And people listening to this who've got parent reading groups and children's reading groups at schools might well go away and set that up. That would be a lovely thing. And <laughs> if, if it was normal times, I'd be happy to come to a reading group. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do you know, I thank you so much for your time this afternoon, Victoria. We've been talking for ages. I feel we've probably scratched the surface, but there's it's so rich, everything that you've shared with us. Thanks so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.